0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids check it out and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do all the authors have been on this podcast also check out my tiktok at with and tracy my other podcast sex talk with zibby and tracy check out moms don't have time to write on medium and of course my new publishing company called Zivvy books and now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids hi hi hello enjoy the show If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Here's a little snippet by one of the authors from the anthology.
1: My name is Rex Ogle, author of Free Lunch, and I'm stoked to have contributed to Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. My essay is called Historia Sobre Mi, Stories About Me. And what I really don't have time for is making time for self care, but I'm learning to make time, and so should you.
0: Amor Towles is the author of The Lincoln Highway. He's also the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Rules of Civility, which I adored, and A Gentleman in Moscow. The two novels have collectively sold more than 4 million copies and have been translated into more than 30 languages. Towles lives in Manhattan with his wife and two children. Welcome, Amor. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the Lincoln Highway and all of your work and everything else.
1: Thanks, Debbie. Thanks for having me.
0: I have to tell you that I read The Rules of Civility with my book club years ago when it first came out, and still it remains one of my favorite books. So good, so amazing. And then I actually, I went and saw you speak somewhere related to that book ages ago. This is like embarrassing now that I'm like stalking you. But anyway, I was such a huge super fan and now have like been following along with you. So I'm delighted to get to talk to you about this book.
1: Great. Terrific.
0: Yes. Okay, The Lincoln Highway. Would you mind just telling listeners a little more about what it's about and how you came up with the idea for this book?
1: The, the Lincoln Highway, sort of the background is that before our story begins, as it were, an honorable young Nebraskan goes to the county fair with his little brother. A bully picks a fight with him at the fair. He punches the bully. The bully falls back, hits his head, and dies. As a result, Emmett, our hero, is sentenced to 18 months in a juvenile work farm. The book opens on the day that Emmett has been released and the warden is driving him home to Nebraska. In the meantime, uh, Emmett's mother is long gone, but in the meantime, while he was away, his father has passed away and the family farm has gone into foreclosure. And the warden is saying to Emmett that he's an honorable young man, that uh, what happened at the fair was a freak accident, that he has paid his debt, to society. So what he he really should do is be prepared to start his life anew. Emmett says that's exactly what his intention is to do. He's going to pick up his younger brother, get in his car and head west uh, to, to start his adulthood, as it were. But when the warden drives away, it turns out the two young friends from the work farm have hidden themselves in the trunk of the warden's car. And they have a very different vision for Emmett's future and so as a result instead of piling in the car and heading west, uh, Emmett, his little brother and his two friends end up heading east on the Lincoln Highway towards New York City with everything going awry. So this is kind of the, the way the story begins, which and it's in whole story only lasts 10 days and it takes place in June of 1954.
0: I have to say, when I first heard about the story, I wasn't imagining the inmates. I wasn't thinking that one of them was going to be like a trust fund kid from the Upper East Side, which is sort of where I am right now, you know, and one, you know, Dutchess County and all of this stuff. Like, it just, I was surprised by your, the fall from grace and how they got there and how that sort of reverberates in a lot of your stories. People sure. who've come from wealth or who are going, you know, falling from their stations, even the the dad himself, right?
1: People from boarding school get themselves into trouble all the time. <laughs> where, now where, where are you? Where is this? Where are you right now?
0: I'm in New York City, but actually like three feet away, my son is here from boarding school okay. right now. So. Okay, tell
1: yeah. Time to keep out of trouble. I know. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I, I've spent, I, I don't go to the Hamptons, uh, but certainly there are young people in the Hamptons getting themselves into trouble too. So, you know, I think if you look at a, you know, a juvenile program, it may be a mix. And just as if you went to a rehab program, it may be a mix of kids from, Uh, very different walks of life. And so that, yes, one of the things that happens in this story is three kids who might never have come to know each other in the course of a normal life. The mistakes that each of the three have made has put them in a position where they suddenly meet each other, come to know each other, become friends, and and their fates become a little bit more intertwined.
0: Yes. It is always so random, the people you end up being, crossing your paths with in different (laughs) arenas, not necessarily in the trunk of a car, but You know, (laughs) I was also really interested in how Emmett sort of decided to become a carpenter's apprentice and that he couldn't deal with how out of control it was to be a farmer, right? And you had to be so dependent on the weather and all these things. And then he decided to apprentice to earn extra money with a carpenter. And the way he conceptualized both those professions that he didn't have to worry. All the things that had plagued his father and his family. Like, if you are a carpenter, you're always going to have work. Like, you don't have to worry. So I just thought for someone from such a young age, that was a very interesting sort of insight. So tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, I suppose the bigger context in what you're describing is is really the, the book is about three 18-year-old boys, roughly a 19-year-old young woman there's an eight-year-old, too, who plays a critical part of the story. But if you think about those four figures, who are all around 18, 19, 20 years old, um, that's a point in your life or in our lives that is kind of universally. It's a sort of an interesting moment because if you think about our lives between zero and 16, that's a period where we are receiving all kinds of input, instruction, counsel, <laughs> In, from our parents, from school, from our church, from the community around us, whatever shared values our community has, all of them are, are constantly you know, speaking to young people before the age of 16, providing them advice, guidance, telling them stories in one form or another. And all this is really to shape the young individual and to define help define uh, who they are and how they view right and wrong where they're where they draw their lines what they think is possible for themselves what they think is essential to do you know all these things are being passed to us but you get to around 171819 and, and suddenly the the compass spins as it were and and the, those suddenly we realize as young 171819 year olds wait you know i don't i can i can make my own decisions about who I am, about what I wanna do with my life, about what is right and wrong. And when we make that transition, either consciously or unconsciously, both happen. We take all those inputs from our youth and we amplify some and we discard others. You know, And then there are kids who very self-consciously wanna be like their father. Let's say a son wants to be like father. There are kids who very self-consciously reject their father's choices. Even if their father's an honorable person, they must say, you know, I, the life that my father has chosen is, is alien to me, anathema to me, and I, you know, I would no sooner do X than you know, than jump off a cliff. And so, so you can have both sort of moments occur. And and yes, the all three of the young men in this case, and and, and Sally, the young woman too, they are at that moment in their lives, and they are very conscious of the lives that their parents lead, and they have inherited both problems and wisdom from their parents to varying degrees, and they are defining their lives in contrast in, in some cases. And so, yes, for Emmett, you being raised in a farm by a father who wasn't a natural farmer and seeing the ongoing struggles that that has created for him and that they've had to share as a family. It's very natural for him to be like, no, this is not for me. You know, and and so, you know, but as I say, that's just sort of a part of the bigger mosaic of individual decision making at that point. And the story investigates many different kinds of decisions that the the young characters are making in a similar type of context.
0: Yes. This is how I feel about going into finance, by the way. (laughs) I would rather be, I would rather be nailing.
1: You know, you have parents. I
0: have have my I have a family in finance. So I'm like, you know, let me just read books all day. Thank you very much. (laughs) Didn't you have a background in finance or did I make that up? Didn't you start out that way? I spent
1: spent twenty years in the
0: investment business, yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. And I saw pictures, by the way, on your Instagram of the Lincoln Highway and I didn't realize how well, you know, the way it was paved, like even today, it still has bricks and all of that. Like that was such a visually arresting image. Is that really, that's, do you know what I'm talking about or not? <laughs> no, of course. Uh,
1: the, the Lincoln Highway, which the book draws its, the name from, is, was, is the first highway that crossed America. So in the early 20th century, as the car was was gaining in popularity across the country, the vast majority of roads in the United States were, first of all, were unpaved. And so the dirt roads, which were okay for horse horses in rain, proved to be more difficult for cars. So cars would have difficulty navigating these roads if they got to, became muddy, for instance. But in addition, the roads weren't really designed for long distance travel. They were designed to get you from the farm into a town, or you know from the train depot to your house, and you know that's what roads were for. So they spiderwebbed out from townships and, and municipalities. What they weren't really designed to do was to go from, say, Boston to Salt Lake City. You know, there was nobody was doing that. And there was no, the, the only, if you wanted to go from Boston to Salt Lake City, you took a train and, and you certainly didn't take a carriage so, or a car. So a an American entrepreneur by the name of Carl Fisher, who believed that Americans, now that they had cars, would want to see their country and should see their country, decided that he would build a paved road that crossed the country from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, specifically from Times Square to San Francisco. At the time, the federal government wasn't involved in road making at all. And so it ended up being a private venture. He raised money from the public and barnstormed to raise money. And eventually he raised enough money, you know, whatever in today's terms, millions of dollars. And the road was built. Now, the reason I go through all this is because it's not like they had one crew who started it in Times Square and paved the roads slowly across the nation? Three hundred miles, three thousand miles later. What, of course, they did is they is his notion was we're going to raise money all across the country, and the individual counties in which the road is going to cut through will be a part of, you know, they'll take over their zone, you know, and, and each so sort of simultaneously, groups would be building the road all across the country, county by county, for you know once it was once the lawn the line was drawn. Of where it was going to be. Now, so that meant that to some degree, the, the, the roads, how they were made did differ from place to place. And in Omaha, Nebraska, there is a stretch which has, you know, which has not been tinkered with for a hundred years, really. And that yes, a photograph is, I just posted on my Instagram account recently. That is a bricked, a bricked se- a segment now, that's, that's not a coincidence. It's because, and it's a red brick road. It's not a yellow brick road, but it's not a coincidence because you actually go not far from there to, for instance, Aurora, Nebraska, which is right in the middle of Nebraska. There were brickworks in those counties. And so, you know, they didn't have cobblestones, they had bricks. And it was a very easy thing to, you know, sort of the notion of where we use bricks. If you go to Aurora, Nebraska today, the downtown area around the town hall, all the streets are brick, you know, in that specific, specific, you know, area. So it's not as if the Lincoln highway was brick from the beginning to end. It's just that in that segment, it was brick. And, and for whatever reason, that little segment has not been touched for a hundred years. So it is kind of a, it's a fun sort of little window on how, on what that segment of road looked like. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: Oh. oh, my gosh. I love that. I just wanted to read this one part about... Emmett and when he finds something special from his father tucked away in the car and he, it was a, it's about books themselves. So I just wanted to read this thing about how he doesn't approve or his dad had never approved of ripping out books. And yet here's a page he said, his father made painfully clear that night to deface the pages of a book was to adopt the manner of a Visigoth. It was to strike a blow against the most sacred and noble of man's achievements, the ability to set down his finest ideas and sentiments so that they might be shared through the age. For his father to tear a page from any book was a sacrilege. What was even more shocking was that the page was torn from Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays, that book which his father held in greater esteem than any other. So is this something you share? Do you have a feeling about ripping pages out of books? Like, was this a thing in your family, too?
1: Well, you know. My books are an invention, so no, so they are not <laughs> expressions of my, of my family behavior.
0: I was just wondering if that stemmed from anywhere. That that was my um, one um, personal um, question. Emmett,
1: <laughs> in that story, Emmett got in trouble for defacing a book and was sent home by the principal, in essence, and his father was furious. That did not happen to me, <laughs> so. But you know, of course, I think we all, most of us, witness some version of that at some point in our lives. I think it's probably a pretty universal situation where, in elementary school, some kid starts drying in the books. And, and, you know, a particularly traditional teacher will be furious and say, well, you know, what are you doing? You know, you can't be drawing in the books, you know, and uh, not allowed. So, you know, somewhere along the way, we, somebody expresses to us the the elevated importance of books and taking care of books and, and showing you know, sharing them respect them, whether it's a librarian or a parent, or as I say, a, you know, a teacher. And so, and no, that was not a family thing, but, but I, I do think it's probably <laughs> a universal moment. But yes, the main, I I liked sort of the contrast there that the father wants to, you know, he's, since the farm's in foreclosure, he doesn't have much to leave his son. And so, you know, he leaves him advice and he leaves him advice from his hero, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the the great American middle of the 19th century reverend and essayist and philosopher. That's what he leaves him, you know, and, and, and as, as Emmett says, you know, here's a guy, he both loved Emerson, prized the book hated the defacing of books and yet tore out this you know passage you know before he died to give a son and and therefore it kind of has sort of the weight of all of these things behind it. You know, it's, it's something that you should take all the more seriously for the fact that it that for his father to do it, you know, it was it was contrary even to his own normal you know rules. It must be an important passage. And <laughs> and you know, of course, in the way of the books, it, it, Emmett's ability to understand that passage at that point in the story is very different than his ability to understand that passage at the end of the story. And you know, and that I'll leave that for others to figure out on their own.
0: Dot dot dot
1: (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
0: I also, I watched the video you posted somewhere, I saw somewhere, about your very different books. And obviously all three have been quite different in terms of form and character and everything. And you go into why. Why did some take place over multiple decades? whereas some take place over 10 days or in a summer or whatever? And even different time periods and types of people. And it sounded like you are just, it's like you're, you're like a master craftsman who has to try a new challenge each time, right? It, that's the way it's like you wanted to hone your craft by trying different things. So tell me about that and why you see it working so well to sort of jump time periods or format or structure and, and what your plans are from here.
1: All Now, right. uh, for right. First of all, I don't, think of myself as a master craftsman, but i do think of myself as a craftsperson or whatever you want to put it. but you know different writers are trying to achieve different things in their writing and and sometimes trying to achieve different things in different books. and but yes, as a novelist, i am very interested in how elements of craft can be used to achieve different types of narratives and different types of outcomes artistically and philosophically. so when, you know, from my standpoint, when you shift a story for, you know, a decade and you shift the focus from, you know, one age group to another, and you shift the central focus of the story from, you know, a happy event to a tragic event or whatever these little elements are that, that, that distinguish one from story from another. For me, what part of the thing that's interesting about that as a challenge is that is that virtually that... Every element of craft should change along with those simple facts, you know, and so meaning that, you know, to tell these two different stories, one that say, let's say it's, you know, like this story in the mid 50s, if this story were, you know, 13 years later, 15, 14 years later, it was 1968, and you still had an 18 year old, what a radically different tone and poetics you would need to bring to bear to tell that story. Because, you know, life for an 18-year-old in America in 1968, you've got the Vietnam War, you've got, you're on the verge of Woodstock, you've got rock and roll is is booming, you've got, you know, a counterculture, you've got free love movement in San Francisco, you know, you've got a lot of going on. And, you know, which is not happening in 1954, you know, not even a generation before, half a generation before, it's a completely different landscape. And so in tackling a story about an 18-year-old in either one of those moments in time, as I say, the... The vocabulary would clearly be different, but so would the semantics, and so would the the imagery, and so would how the poetics the poetics work, and the tone of the dialogue would be different. How settings are described would be different. The pace of the book might be different. Certainly, the themes, at the center, are going to be different, and and that's going to reverberate back through how the language is chosen and and formed. So, yes, as a writer, what I think is interesting is when you turn that dial. How you reinvent all these elements of craft: your dialogue, your setting, your characterization, your communication of ideas, your metaphors and allegories and illusions and similes and all these various elements of poetics. How do you retool them for this story of, of these people at this time? And that's you know part of the fun for me, and hopefully fun for the reader. So that you know, if, if someone's a fan of *A Gentleman in Moscow: Rules of Civility*, I think they will find that the *Lincoln Highway* is clearly my book. They will recognize it as my work, but they will also see that quite quickly that artistically speaking, it's very different than the other two, just as they were different from each other. And that, that, you know, hopefully is something that they'll enjoy that experience of difference.
0: Interesting. So what's your next book going to be? Different. (laughs) Is that, that's it? No more, no more details. Okay. What made you go from, the world of finance to writing, and then now that you're here, what advice would you have for aspiring authors?
1: Well, I've been writing since I was a kid. So I wrote fiction in elementary school, okay. high school, and college, and graduate school. So really, that's the thing I've been doing all my life. And my childhood friends, what they find surprising is that I was in the investment business for 20 years. You know, Got that's it. what shocks them. You know, but so you know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a great font for advice, you know, source for, for advice, but you know, for me, for me, what worked for me was basically read, write, repeat, you know? So from the time I was in first grade, I, I would read something and if it grabbed me, I'd read more of it. And then I would probably start writing in some fashion, drawing from what I just read as an experiment or as thievery or whatever you want to call it. And that and that just sort of that began around the time I was in first grade and continued right through to today. I'm constantly reading books with the interest not only of enjoying them but of understanding how they work and uh, you know, how an author approaches their craft, how they realize their the intrinsic mission of their books, and and that inevitably influences me. You know, and and shapes kind of how I might. It's one thing I get to carry into the next project is 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 how that person did that. I'm not, I'm not copying people. I'm mean, gonna I make it sound like it, but I'm 57. So I'm talking about after decades of reading. You know, you've accumulated a, a large vocabulary of of different styles of storytelling, different approaches to storytelling, and that that helps me when I set out and invent an idea. and I have to start thinking about how do I tell this. I can draw on this. Sort of long-standing awareness uh, of, of different types of storytelling that might serve the purposes of this tale.
0: Very interesting. Well, I feel like one of the things that you do particularly well is developing your characters and how real they become, and how quickly you're able to introduce us to them. Like we feel like you get to know them very quickly with just a few details or a few sentences that they say. You you know, within a page or two, like. I totally got to know Duchess, right? Like that's who that person is. I know the backstory, he's funny, like all the things, like it's just, it's very impressive because sometimes it takes a while to get to know people. I don't know. So I feel like that's one of the most vivid things in your writing, but.
1: I appreciate you saying that, but uh, I'm glad that's your experience, but because that's certainly the intention. I think that one of the elements of the novel that are, are most important and they're most unique or an element which is the mo- is is among the most important and is the most unique is what you're describing which is that the novel is an art form in which we can take the perspective of a different human being you know where we suddenly can see the world through their eyes we can feel in in the best of novels very close to their experience we Im- feel emotionally in tune with them so if they f- have a setback we're upset if they have a victory we're excited you know if something funny happens to them we laugh if something tragic happens then we cry you know there's a real potential bonding between a reader and central characters. And when that happens, it's a beautiful thing, I think, and, and make, can make a story much more powerful. So I do think that for young writers, this should be one of the things that they strive to gain a command of, which is how do you invent a, a personality, so in a three-dimensional individual, idiosyncratic, you know, is unique, and yet the reader gets access very quickly to an understanding of who they are. Now we part of the pleasure of a novel is also is getting a deeper and deeper understanding of who they are and watching how they change. So you know, it's not like you need to know everything. Right. But as you say, you know, you 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 want to know enough about them that that you kind of have a sense of, oh yeah, okay, I, I I know I can feel who this person is. I know who this person is. And now I'm going to join them in this discovery and I'm going to get to know them better along the way. Much much in the way that we do in life, you know, if particularly when we hit it off with somebody. You know, you, you spend 40 minutes at a party talking to somebody who's a natural fit for you. And it's just like, it's it's very exciting. You you feel like, I, I feel, like you feel like I've known this person their whole lives. And you realize there's many things you still need to know about them. And, you know, and they are changing, but yet you have this strong sense of affinity. And and you're, I think in, in writing, you're trying to create that similar version of that experience. You know, but you just, the, the, the challenge is that you have to make that, that, that connection that aspect of affinity for all kinds of readers at the same time. You know, yeah. I can't sort of just make one in a thousand people like my main character. You know I mean? <laughs> it does have to be a broader, ideally a broader scope than that.
0: It's really like magic that it ever works really. I mean, when you think about it. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is. It's very much like magic. <laughs> anyway. Well, more thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the hours of reading yeah. pleasure you've given me on your
1: <laughs> thank you, thank you, Sue. Thanks for having me. So,
0: thanks so much. All right, thank take you. care. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.